Buckle up and crank up that volume. This is Serialistly with Annie Elise. Hey everybody, welcome back. My name is Annie Elise and happy Monday. We are doing another episode of Serialistly today and I have a very special treat for you. I have an amazing guest co-host with me, Mike King from Profiling Evil. I am so excited to have him here, guys, because we have been collaborating now for a few years and it's the first time we're in person together. Th- that was really fun to see you in the parking <laughs> lot, Annie, and I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So. I refer to Mike as like the expert of all things, like profiling, obviously profiling evil, cults, everything. He's like the go-to person. So I have a lot I want to talk to you about today, first (laughs) of all. (laughs) But can you also just give the listeners a little bit um, of a brief rundown of your history and your background? Okay. Uh, Well, I I did a law enforcement career. I was fortunate to work about 28 years before retiring. I retired as a chief in an attorney general's office. But along the way, I worked through the ranks in law enforcement. So I was a young testosterone-filled street cop for many years. And then I worked into investigations and eventually into administration. Along the way, I was fortunate to be trained in criminal profiling by FBI profilers. And so oftentimes I focus on behavior uh, more often, I think, probably than some others do. But I think it's really indicative of what's going on in the mindset of these predators that we talk about on our channels. Uh, Since then, I've spent the last 17 plus years working with law enforcement around the world, providing consultative support in investigations, 911, and uh, now in artificial intelligence. Awesome. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here, Mike. I have so much I want to talk to you about. And thank you for giving it a brief rundown. So what I want to do today is go over some of the recent headline cases, some that all of us know about. I'll do a quick little recap of some just in case the maybe listeners haven't heard of it. And I want your expert weigh-in on these because I have some pointed questions for you because I want to pick your brain about the profile of these people. And then we're going to get into cults. This will be interesting. Okay, we'll see. I'm going to put you on the spot here. I have here. no idea what you're going to ask. I know. So folks, I, I could, this is going to prove to stump the dummy probably. <laughs> no, we'll see. And then at the very end, I actually have a few pointed questions that I'm going to put you on the spot for. Oh, but okay. I, but <laughs> we're going to have some fun. It's going to be good. I'm excited. Right. Okay, so first, let's for sure talk about Lori Vallow. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case, first of all, you've been living under a rock. But let me just tell you, it's like the cliche of all cliches. A woman falls in love with a cult leader. She gets into some really bad stuff. Unfortunately, her children ended up being murdered, found on Chad's property. I know you've been covering it over on your channel, and I want to get your way in now that their trials have been severed. Lori and Chad's. Do you think that's going to help Chad's case, Lori's case? Do you think they're going to flip on each other? What do you think we can expect? Yeah, I, I'm like you. I'm really kind of interested in what on earth that was all about in severing. I mean, Lori forcing the court to give her her constitutional right to a speedy trial. How we can call it speedy after two years, I have no idea. I know, right? But uh, I hope if I'm ever tried, it's it actually happens speedily. But uh, I think it kind of shows a little bit of her personality about let's just get this over with. Let's solve the problem and move on. I thought it was interesting when they were, uh, before the, the cases were severed, they were really smart in getting married because nobody can force them to testify mm-hmm. against each other. So if they do, it's going to be really surprising. And frankly, 
I don't see it happening unless somehow Lori throws Chad under the bus during her trial. And then I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they have to say about her. But at that point, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we we got to backdrop down. Mechanical problem here. <laughs> Guys, that's that's just how it goes. Sometimes things fall off the wall while we're recording. I'm not going to touch that. <clears throat> so, so the interesting thing is, I think we've got kind of an a uh, an interesting dilemma coming because if Lori does something that puts the blame on Chad, and she gets a minimized sentence or no sentence at all, oh my gosh, imagine. Oh. Her trial's over. Yeah. He can say whatever he wants, but it is over. And so that's going to be really interesting. Um, I, I personally don't think it's going to happen. So I thought from the beginning, like when we first heard about this case, that they both were going to just throw Alex, Lori's brother, under the bus. I was like, I kind of think he's the henchman anyway who did a lot of her dirty work. And I would imagine now that he's deceased as well, which, guys, if you're not familiar with this case, you got to brush up on it. It's Every single person who has come into close contact with these people has now died for the most part. Um, it's a crazy case, like Lifetime movie on steroids. But I always thought they would go against Alex. But now I'm like, they've been separated for so long. I don't know if they would try to save themselves because they're so ego driven or what it is. So I think it's going to be interesting to see. Do you think Lori will take the stand? Yeah. I don't think she will personally, no. but but here's what I do think is interesting. I still think Alex isn't out of the woods because why not pick the dead guy? Why not put all the blame on him? Why not come out and say, yeah, we had these kind of wacky beliefs and we were talking about it. We had no idea he was going to go for mm -hmm. it and do it. And uh, so we're surprised. The, the hard part is that the behavior behind that, I mean, isn't it so interesting that the children are uh, migrated up to Idaho, that they're mysteriously taken on this family vacation to Yellowstone where we can get pictures of what a loving, kind group they are together and how happy everyone is, and then have these pieces start to fall into play. You talk about Tammy. Isn't it interesting that she dies mysteriously in her sleep? And then those two head off to Hawaii and decide uh, to get married. I, and that wedding photo will forever make me cringe when I see it, when they're playing like the ukulele on the beach and <laughs> yeah. she's like dancing. I'm like, I just can't right now. It's so bad. And she bought the wedding ring on Amazon before Tammy was even dead. Exactly. And the kind of wedding ring and what it's made up of is just so... Interesting, but you know, you th you think about this, and you made the comment. Um, she falls in love with the cult leader, and I wonder if, she, yeah, she probably was infatuated with him from an ideological standpoint. But then all of a sudden, he he's got kind of this mundane day to day life going on, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, he's got this this uh, what he would describe, and many have described as this attractive younger woman who's now saying oh you're you're the cat's meow and all of a sudden he starts thinking oh this is really cool but there's something really weird about these uh kinds of psychological predators because i think that what happens is they start to take the ideology that they've been dabbling with and they start to twist it to justify what they would have probably done anyway. They start to make up these scenarios that justify and say, oh, yeah, God would want this to happen. I, well, it's interesting you say that because that I feel like is a huge precursor to 
when we get into the Colt conversation, because I've got a lot to talk to you about with FLDS, Warren <laughs> Jeffs, like Samuel Bateman, we, oh, we're going there, which I feel like they, to your point, they twist it to make it okay to oh, yeah. marry these young girls, like 11 years old to do, which I don't want to jump ahead, but we'll get there. But yeah, it's again, a version of a cult, in my opinion, with Lori and Chad. So it's going to be interesting to see yeah, how I mean, it all you, shakes do you, out. Do you think that, that uh, Lori Daybill would try to testify? I don't know. I feel like, she, and I obviously don't know her, but I just feel like from her behavior in court, when she's always smiling, she tries to like look cute in mug shots. Like part of me feels like she's very ego centered and like she, I don't want to say narcissist because I can't diagnose anybody. So I don't want to throw that around. But like I could see where she wants to come off as this loving mother who does no wrong so that she would take the stand. But at the same time, when they were trying to have her deliver the children to show that they were safe, she just evaded forever and was until she got caught ultimately. So I really don't know. Yeah, I've, uh, this is going to be a really interesting one. You know, um, I, I was asked kind of this same question by Vinnie Politan on Court TV the other night about whether I thought Lori would enjoy what's going to happen in the next mm. three to four weeks plus. You know, it was originally scheduled for like 10 weeks. Now that it's severed. It could still go, I guess, 10 weeks, but I'm suspecting it's probably going to be a five, six-week trial. But uh, I thought, absolutely, she's going to um, really enjoy all the attention that yeah. she's getting, where most people would be thinking, how do I plead guilty to avoid having to spend more time in front of the camera? And, you know, I when with Alec Murdoch, I thought, this is a guy that's going to testify. And boy, he didn't let me down. Oh, cool. But I just don't I know. know. I just don't know about Lori. I, I don't know. Well, so I guess that I have two more questions with Lori, and then we'll move on to the next case. With that, if she is found guilty and they believe that she was involved in the children's death, when it comes time for Chad's trial, do you think that he would throw it all on her and his defense say it was all Lori, Chad had no idea, and then because she's already been found guilty, they have that to kind of bolster that argument? Or how will that shake out, do you think? Yeah, that's kind of interesting, isn't it, is to put the blame on her now that she's got all the blame anyway mm -hmm. and facing it. Um, the the interesting thing is, regardless of what he does, he's going to have to say, I didn't know any of this was happening. I didn't know that these children were going to be buried in my backyard. I didn't know that I was going to say I'm out shooting raccoons. Oh, my gosh, you know? the text message. You're right. <laughs> You're right. So. So, and this is where the value of behavior, when you look at this from a profiling perspective, you know, we have these traditional forms of evidence in these kinds of cases. We have the physical and forensic evidence that we're all kind of used to looking at. The, you see the bloody footprint and all of that stuff. And then, and then we have circumstantial evidence, this idea that all these pieces kind of tell us that A plus B it's going to always equal C. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so you have these uh, eyewitness accounts and and you have confessions and those are called traditional forms of evidence. But then we have behavioral evidence that's not talked about a lot, but it's really the thing that I think impacts jurors more than anything when you say, but would you do that? Mm -hmm. You know, would you feel this way? Would you as a mother, Annie, allow someone to kill your children you know so you start thinking about that and this is where i think sometimes law enforcement misses or prosecution miss the boat i'm not saying let's really bring out the behaviors here as part of all of this because that helps a juror go holy cow no i wouldn't do that mm, yeah 
I mean, well, she's calling her own children zombies, so there's really not like much that I would put past her for doing anyway. Yeah, could you imagine uh, little Tylee <sighs> pleading with her mother, "Mom, I'm not a zombie," I know. and uh, and just trying to like, rationalize with this crazy person. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, I mean, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, we'll definitely watch that. Now, it sounds to me like when you say not Lori and Chad that you've already decided they're guilty. Oh, they're guilty. Science, you'll deliver. Like if I'm on, if I was on that jury, they'd be guilty for sure. I'm definitely not impartial. You'd say there was no need for a ten week trial. No. Yeah. I'd be like guilty, guilty, done. Like it, the writing. I mean, in my opinion, the writing is on the wall. There's a reason she didn't produce the kids for months on end when they were all searching for them. There's a reason why he lied to his wife about shooting raccoons in the text message and they were found in the fire pit and then in the bag. Like, there's not much you could explain away for that yeah. to me, at least. But I'm also very judgmental. So, <laughs> And I know you always tell me we it's have to look at channel. like... <laughs> you always say, well, we have to look at their patterns. We have to do this. I'm like, no, 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 Mike. We have to jump to conclusions and say they're guilty. <laughs> Today's episode of Seriously is sponsored by Nuts.com. All right, guys, do you know that 11 a.m. feeling where it's like after breakfast, but it's not quite lunch yet? You've been trying to eat healthy and you're not trying to just like grab a donut for a snack, but you're super hungry and you need something and you're just so freaking famished, that feeling? Well, if that's you, you need to try nuts.com. Nuts.com is your one-stop shop for freshly roasted nuts, dried fruit, sweets, pantry staples like specialty flowers, and more. Their wide selection means that there is something for everyone. Now, I tried a bunch of stuff because I want it all. So, I tried chocolate-covered gummy bears, roasted almonds, trail mix, and guys, everything I tried, I loved. Every single thing. It was honestly the perfect snack. And they have so much to choose from, so there really is something for everybody. They have dried fruit, nuts and seeds, chocolate, gummy bears, I mean, you name it. Right now, Nuts.com is offering new customers a free gift with purchase and free shipping on orders of $29 or more at Nuts.com slash AE. So go check out all of the delicious options at Nuts.com slash AE. You'll receive a free gift and free shipping when you spend $29 or more. Guys, check it out. And again, that is Nuts.com slash AE. Your snack cravings will thank me later. Um, okay, so shifting gears now to the West Boys. That's one of the first cases you and I really ever collaborated on, I think, yes, too. Yes, it was. And because that happened back in 2020. And that's the two little boys, Orin and Orson, who went missing from Cal City, California, originally from Bakersfield. And it's suspected that they never even made it to Cal City. And now that trial's coming up. Now, I want to know if you remember that I told you those boys probably never even made it to that oh, house yeah. back 2020. Yeah. It, which, I mean... I know neighbors had reported that they never even saw the boys in Cal City. We know that they all like went in that van the day before or before Christmas Eve or whenever it was right before the boys went missing. But they only had some of the kids with them, not the boys, which you wouldn't yeah. leave young children, toddlers behind like that. But what's interesting is because now that that's all starting, I just read that after in their opening statements, and I want to quote this exactly, it says... A week after Oren and Orson West were reported as missing, a child who had been living with them gave a statement saying that he witnessed one of the boys die and said that the other later disappeared after a loud thud was heard one night. And that's what the prosecution yeah. said, which I know we all believed that somebody, one of the children had witnessed it based on the affidavit and what was said in there, because I think one of the charges, and you may know it off the top of your head better than I do, it was something about 
what was it like enlisting a child to help in a crime? And we were like, did they make the children help with the cleanup? Was the one of the children present for that? So I thought that was really interesting. And then the prosecution also said that the interview that one of the children had given on December 28th, 2020, which was just a few days after the boys were reported as missing, he said, that boy said he woke one night to noises coming from Oren while the family still lived in an apartment on Lotus Lane in Bakersfield, which is, of course, before they ever moved to Cal City. And he said his parents got to Oren first and they watched as his color faded, he vomited and died. Now, this would, of course, go in line with them either going to Cal City as a cover-up to move to get away from Bakersfield, to get away from and detach mm-hmm. themselves because like so many like you suspected he never made it to cal city neither one of them did in my opinion it's unbelievable i mean they're just evil what do you think as far as now that we're going into the trial and what's going to happen there you know i i I think i remember the discussions that we were having around this and we both talked about how important this child's testimony or the children in the home was going to end up mm-hmm. being and that we would never hear about that probably because uh, the Division of Family Services was involved. And, and of course, you got to protect these children. But now to hear that this child has the courage to really say, uh, I don't remember mm-hmm. them being here when we moved to, to Colorado City. I remember specifically this murder. That's that's huge. And imagine that little kid having to pack that around for so long. It really is frustrating. But if you remember early on in the case, when we were watching all of the people uh, kind of uh, doing the ad hoc searches all around mm-hmm. Colorado City. Cal and, City. Or, yeah, <laughs> no, Colorado I, City. We're, yeah, we're going to cold soon. We're going to cold soon. Yeah. And, and you remember we were talking about how frustrated we were that law enforcement didn't seem really invested in California mm-hmm. City, but they kept doing things over in Baker. Yeah. And it, it all makes sense when you saw those really detailed searches they were doing in, in uh, Baker. Um, that that was telling me at that time that that's where the case is taking them. Mm-hmm. And if nothing Sometimes you say, can anything good come from it? From an investigative perspective, if it kept all the noise in Colorado, I mean, in California City, um, and then that allowed those investigators to continue to work things there. Um, But yeah, I think of those poor children having to witness this and then be told to keep it quiet, how how terrifying that was for them as well. Well, and that's the next bullet I had here that I wanted to read was that they said, the prosecution said that the West parents, Trezell and Jackie, asked the child if they should tell somebody or keep it a secret as if the child should instruct you on what to do. And then they also said, go on to say, and what you'll hear through testimony is the child knew that if they told somebody, they would be taken away from their parents. So mm. these monsters are not only saying, hey, should we tell anybody? What should we do? Don't tell anyone or you're going to be taken away from us as well. And like instilling this fear in these children. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be really interested if they ever really did ask that question or if they made it more of a statement of if anyone ever finds out, you guys are all going to be going mm-hmm. someplace else and and put that fear because that, that seems to be the way that people control children is with fears yeah. of what might happen. You know, another thing that I thought was interesting in this particular case, in the timing of the move, was that by moving the new neighbors wouldn't know about those children. No. The old neighbors would soon forget the you know that couple that had 
uh, foster kids that were in and out and, and, uh, they wouldn't remember. But the thing that bugs me is the family members that would have undoubtedly known those kids were missing in action. Oh yeah. And they kept their lips sealed as I well. I think what was her name? And Wanda was the mother, the grandmother. And she put out that whole statement saying, God's already forgiven you for like, you need to just tell the truth as though she were pleading with an abductor of some sort. And I remember that statement always rubbed me the wrong way because there was certain wording in it to where it almost was as though she was talking directly to somebody who she knew. Interesting, and it's, yeah. it really rubbed me the wrong way to where I'm like, She's already saying they've forgiven this person, which I get. Maybe you use that as a tactic, but something never sat right. And remember, the scent dogs that went to the Cal City house never picked up a scent outside of the house. It was yeah. only on the belongings in the house, but there was no proof that the boys had ever been there. No Christmas gifts under the tree, nothing, even though she was yeah. inside wrapping gifts. Yeah, that was that was a crazy story from day one. And boy, what a powerful statement that things like uh, ring doorbells and other mm -hmm. kinds of things play in this. Uh, I, I, I would suspect you have cameras around your house. We have oh, yeah. cameras around our house. Yeah. Uh, our, our neighbor had his car broken into the other day and we were able to pull up something and, oh, yeah. and you know, send over. And uh, um, so we're really fortunate. I wish we would have had things like that when I was looking at cases, but. I bet. I mean, that always blows my mind too, though. And I say even about Google all the time, like criminals, I don't know if they really are just really stupid or if like, they think they're not going to get caught because they're searching Google on their phone for these crazy things. How long till a body goes cold? How to dispose of a body? They know ring cameras are almost everywhere nowadays, yet they're traipsing around in front of neighbors' houses doing things. And I'm like, you're asking to get caught, yet you're, you think you're getting away with it. It blows my mind that there isn't yeah. like a level of acknowledging where technology is today and people continue to do it. Which is good for law enforcement, but... Yeah, it is really good for law enforcement. <laughs> I think it speaks to, though, the, the fact of you think about these uh, personalities that commit these kinds of crimes. In most cases, now there are some, there are some really skilled serial killers out there and, and predators that are really good at what they do. And I uh, hope people don't take that offensively, that, <laughs> that, you know, but they yeah. know how to avoid detection. But if you think about most predators... They're um, satisfying this, uh, when, when you think of Freud and he talks about ego, superego, and id, they're satisfying this piece of them called id that's just saying, you know, I, I want this, I deserve it by golly, I'm going to chase it down until I get it, and, uh, and then I'm going to figure out how to fix things after. Mm -hmm. They're so consumed with satisfying their desires that they sometimes forget and get tunnel vision. And I often um, ap apply this kind of thought process to if you think about uh, in the animal kingdom when when mating. <laughs> Maybe the lights are burning my glue. <laughs> <laughs> animal kingdom. So when you think about the animal kingdom and its mating season, and you'll see people walking up on on animals that otherwise they'd never get near to, but they're so focused on this mating process that they, it, you could be driving uh, diesel trucks next to them and they wouldn't be batting an eye. They're so focused. And I think these predators are exactly the same. They fantasize so much about what they're going to do. And when they finally act it out, even, even when it's trying to get away with something that maybe was 
a crime of passion, but then they start fantasizing about how they're going to get away with it. They spend so much time fantasizing that they think I'm fixing all these things along the way hmm. and uh, making simple mistakes that thankfully uh, make the difference. And, and often we see these organized criminal thoughts start to unravel and become disorganized the longer mm -hmm. they can continue doing it. So in serial cases, you sadly hope that there are more victims because that's what's going to tell you yeah. more about the personality of that predator. Oh, God. That's a really interesting take. I never thought about it that way with that comparison with the animal kingdom. That makes total sense, though. It yeah. really does. Yeah. Okay. So you think about it. You know, you and I, we have this mindset that says... Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're the same. We have an id inside of us that says, I want this, you know. Mm -hmm. And then we have this ego and superego that says, oh, hold on. <laughs> you're, you're doing some crazy talk right now. Let's get this level set. You know, you don't just go and do that. No, you uh, you you go out and you create a relationship. And sometimes you, you accept no. And sometimes you, you know, predators don't think that way. Yeah. It's, it's I want it and I'm going to take it. And, uh, and so what we have to do is, is we watch them and see these personality traits unfolding in other parts of their lives. It helps us understand in areas that they're keeping a little more secret. All right. All right. Well, that kind of leads me actually into this next case, and then we're going to get into cults after this. But I want to just quickly ta talk about Aiden Fucci. Aiden Fucci was, of course, pled guilty yeah. to killing Tristan Bailey. Aiden was 14 at the time. Tristan was just 13. He stabbed her, I believe it was, what, 114 times. Well, a brutal case. And all these cases, guys, we've gone over on this channel, and I know Mike has as well. So if you want to do a deep dive on any of them, please feel free to go and do that. I actually will link them in the description also. But I've been talking, unfortunately, a lot lately about these child killers and whether it's Philip Chisholm, whether it's Aiden Fucci, all of these younger criminals who, depending on the state, depending on the charge, either can or can't be charged as an adult and then possibly get evaluated for early release or, you know, they, yeah, after 20 years, maybe they have been, they've had reform or they're rehabilitated. But I guess I want to know, based on your opinion, are a lot of these younger criminals just kind of born bad if there's something wired or it's a, you know, some a predator characteristic or something like that to where they were going to commit this at any point in their life. They just got caught young and they should be locked up. Or do you believe that there is the possibility that people like that could change? Yeah, boy, I'll tell you what, if we could solve this one, you and I would have <laughs> changed the world. In fact, as you were talking, I had these flashbacks of my mentor, a fellow named Greg Cooper, who, as we were going through the profiling process, we hit this. We call it nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he, he said, you know, some people want to blame the fact that they didn't get warm chocolate chip cookies and milk after school for the reason why they choose to be a predator. And other people say, no, no, I'm Irish, therefore I punch people because that's what the Irish do, you know? And uh, and so it, it will be, I think, a question that we can never put into two simple boxes and say it's one or the other, mm -hmm. but it's probably going to always boil down to um, the evolution throughout life of what happened. I mean, you look at some kids and you think, how on earth could two kids from the same family that was dysfunctional, 
one turn into this rock star human being that that is successful and compassionate and loving, and the other ends up being a psychopath. Mm-hmm. That would cause you to lean toward nature. Yeah. You know, in the same light, um, some people, uh, I think we all know what society standards are and the difference between you and I and these predators that we talk about on our shows is that uh, we know what's right and wrong, but they choose to violate those standards anyway. Mm-hmm. And we say, no, I'm, here's the line that id, I'm shoving it back in the back. Yeah. And I'm going to say, oh, okay, then, you know, maybe another time. Okay. So, so we'll never have the answer is what you're telling me. Uh, I think it will always be a different answer based okay. on the individual. Right. Okay. And uh, in some cases, you know, um, Aiden Fucci, he comes from a family that had uh, a broken home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother had four marriages in my lifetime, you know. I, I can't think of a person that I have stabbed 114 exactly. times. People always find an excuse for everything, it seems like. Yeah. But And he had been planning this and he gave himself a timeline and had told his friends i'm gonna kill somebody in the woods in 30 days and so it's like it's not a crime of passion that happened in the heat of the moment like you've been stewing on this and wanting this to happen and then he just chose his target yeah you're absolutely right and this is this is where again behavior becomes so important as we have these kinds of discussions to think about um, one of the other principles that you, we, you learn early when you're going through profiling is that um, fantasy is always cooler than reality. Mm-hmm. And so for a predator, they may fantasize about having some kind of an experience, but whenever they try to act out that experience, it always falls short. It never is as cool as the fantasy was. Mm-hmm. And I would suspect in our normal lives, uh, in our legitimate lives, that we've had experiences where we thought, oh man, isn't this going to be great? And all of a sudden we're going, well, that wasn't that great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but what we do is we say, hmm, okay, you know, I'm going to change my thought process. Mm-hmm. Well, the predator doesn't. The predator says, I got to fix what went oh. wrong. And uh, and so they sit and fantasize and fantasize and fantasize. Pretty soon, the fantasy's not enough and they have to act out. Uh-huh. And then it breaks again and they have to go back to the drawing board. Okay. So that's why you see these predators that are especially fantasy driven. And I believe that Aiden Fucci, for instance, would have probably murdered again had he gotten away with this. That you see them continue to do this because it's the fantasy process Mm -hmm. and his fantasy in that particular case didn't work out like he hoped it would. Mm -hmm. I don't think the resistance that he had, whatever it was, it didn't work out. And most predators will tell you that when, when you interview them and sit with them. And I'll tell you, I've eaten a lot of prison lasagna with serial predators. And, uh, and that is a recurring theme, the fantasy of driving those. It's interesting you say that because the first time you and I talked about that, about the fantasy and the reality and the differentiation, it was when we were talking about Brian Koberger, the accused murderer in the Idaho case. Do you think, had he not been arrested, that he would have killed again, assuming he killed those four students. Yeah, I, I think uh, it probably didn't work out the way he yeah. wanted. Um, and frankly, I th- 
those are the kinds of cases where I think, yeah, we've got something really serious to worry about further down the trail. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? We are going to jump into Colts right now, but first we are going to take a quick break. I am going to chug some Diet Coke because I don't drink coffee and that's what I live for. And we are going to come back and talk about Colts. All right, true crime besties, be honest. How many times have you been stewing about a health problem you have and then hit up Google and go down the entire rabbit hole of WebMD, TikTok, social media, just to self-diagnose yourself 15 minutes later with 12 new diseases that you're positive you now have? Just me? No. I'm sure you've done it too. I know you've done it too. Well, lucky for all of us, today's sponsor is going to help all of us out because there are thousands of medical professionals on ZocDoc to help. They listen like a friend and give you the expert care you need. No more rabbit holes. And let me just say, when someone is just exceptionally good at what they do, you know that you're in good hands. Why would I have social media diagnose me and not a professional? It makes no sense, right? Well, on ZocDoc, finding the doctor that's right for you is seamless. The quality care you need is just a few taps away in the ZocDoc app. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. And they treat almost every condition under the sun. Surprise twists might work for podcasts like mine, but not for medical care. So go to ZocDoc.com slash Annie Elise and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Annie Elise. ZocDoc.com slash Annie Elise. Okay, so I know that we have talked about this before, but can you just give the listeners a quick rundown of your expertise regarding cults themselves? Because you, of course, have the book, which is amazing, guys. I literally read it in one sitting, so tell everybody about your book. <laughs> tell them about what you do with cults, how you've extracted and helped, and just tell them what you do. Tell them everything. You know, uh, I go back early into my law enforcement career. I was working for the county attorney. So that's a district attorney in some areas or a county attorney in others. And that's the prosecuting office in criminal cases. I was running an undercover sting operation. So I was buying stolen cars and we were selling them. And it was the best job that's on awesome. the It was the best <laughs> job like on the planet. <laughs> yeah. We had a great team. It was, it was made up of officers from a bunch of different agencies. And we just go out and we were having a great time. I walked into the county attorney's office one day and it, as I was walking past the secretary he said, "Hey, can you talk to this woman over here? She's been waiting for someone for some time and nobody's around." So I was the bottom rung on the ladder, the last person they wanted to talk to somebody, but they got tired of making this poor woman wait. And so I walked over and she very confidently stood up and she was a beautiful young woman, probably 21, 22 years old at the time. And she said, do you have a minute to talk to me? I've been involved in a cult that's sexually abusing children. And uh, of course, you know, I, I was just, I was just like, didn't know what to say. Yeah. You know, I, you're not an auto theft and I, or an <laughs> yeah. auto thief. And I, uh, ma yeah, ma'am, where's the car? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't do sex crimes, yeah. but nonetheless, I took her back into the office and I started interviewing her. And after a couple of hours, I had enough to, uh, send her home with an invitation to come back the next day. And I went and met with the prosecuting attorney, the the county attorney, and I laid out the case and said, you got to get somebody on this. This is a big deal. And he says, yeah, we got somebody on it. It's you. <laughs> and uh, that was my introduction into child sex abuse. And it was absolutely unfair to those kids, but investigations are investigations. And what we needed was to go in and try to understand this cult and how this cult 
was using coercive mind control to not only control the members, but to control the messaging that was out there. And so after just literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of investigation, we were able to finally serve search warrants on the cult. We took 70 police officers in that morning and hit all of the cult homes at once uh, because this was a cult that was stockpiling uh, um, semi-automatic rifles oh and gosh. food and medical supplies. And, uh, and we took the children into custody and, uh, and then started uh, making arrests. We eventually uh, arrested uh, and charged and convicted 12 people. And, and the prophet, the self-proclaimed prophet of that group, who uh, very comfortably professed that God wanted him to have sex with children, no. uh, ended up spending his life in prison. He, he eventually died in prison. But the 32 children in that group endured on Dr. Phil, I said 4,000 counts of rape. And uh, I was corrected quickly by the victims who were uh, now survivors who were on Dr. Phil with me. And they said, no, double it. And that might be close. So uh, literally thousands and thousands of uh, cases of assault that ended up taking probably two or three years of my life to get through the criminal process on that. And then over the years, because of that, uh, immediately after that case, uh, in the early 90s, if you remember, it was kind of this, they called it the satanic panic era. Oh, yeah. But in the satanic panic area, everybody was just convinced that Lucifer was out killing babies and burying them and all kinds of things. And so the state legislature put a huge chunk of money aside, and I was hired by the attorney general to go down and work this unit and uh, we investigated cases of ritual crime, and we investigated about 300 uh, bona fide allegations where people said, uh, I participated in a cult that sacrificed babies and buried them. And, and uh, we spent um, about two to three years investigating those 300 cases. We had out of that only one that actually could go to the point of saying we know that the people involved did in fact commit these kinds of crimes and the rest uh, kind of fell to the wayside of that regressed uh, memory syndrome and other kinds of allegations that were going on at the time. So as I continued to do that, we were, Utah has the largest number of polygamists Mm -hmm. in the United States. And so part of my duty was to meet and try to understand and infiltrate all of the polygamous communities in the state. So I spent much of my time uh, having uh, lunch with these self-proclaimed prophets and trying to get to understand how their their individual, um, and I called them closed societies. I felt that okay. was a nicer way of, of, you know, not saying cult or something like that, but how about compound? Is that offensive? Well, we live in compounds. I, in many I, mean, cases. I, yeah, I, I know, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we, we and the attorney general, I worked for this amazing attorney general. Her name was Jan Graham, and she came up with this concept called safe at home. And we used that as a way to get into the polygamous communities and teach that 
everyone should know how to report sexual abuse if, in fact, they are physically or sexually abused. And so it was really difficult for these self-proclaimed leaders in these communities, some that had 15, 20,000 members, you oh know. Oh, my gosh. Um, we would say, well, you certainly would want – I know you're telling me that none of this happens, but you'd certainly want people to understand how they could – you know, get away from all of this. And uh, so we were fairly successful in starting to infiltrate and come to know these uh, individuals. But it was a chess match from day one. And uh, and so with that, I spent the last uh, 40 years just studying cult behavior mm-hmm. and getting to know the, the, the real uh, smart cult experts around the world and um, and, and that's kind of led me down a bunch of different goofy paths. Well, one that I want to talk about is the FLDS, because that's one I feel like so many people know it's one of the probably more common like groups that people would associate as a cult because of their beliefs. But I will say it never fails to surprise me that in every single cult or grouping it, where there's a self-proclaimed prophet, why is it that they always believe God is telling them to have sex with young kids? Oh, like it, why it, is that the one staple in all of them? It blows my mind. Like they're not telling you that you should, I don't know, be a, a hot air balloon pilot. Or they're not telling you that. Like why is it always come down to that? Oh, he wants me to have a bunch of wives and have sex with a lot of girls. Like, okay, okay, sure. You know, I I remember I got in a little bit of trouble because I made a public statement during the Zion Society investigation because uh, Arvind Shreve, the prophet of that group, the self-proclaimed prophet, originally started with this concept that he was going to have multiple wives. And so uh, women were being told, you need to leave your husband and marry me. And and he was building this little compound around him. But then I think he started to realize he couldn't take care of that many (laughs) People. So he then had this revelation that said, not only are you to have sex with all these women, Arvin, but the women now should start having relationships with each other. I remember reading that in your book. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was really troubling to a lot of people. And yet absolutely and, and unequivocally accepted by the members of the group. And that's part of one of these cult characteristics that are so unique in these coercive cults is that they have this unique ability to take seemingly intelligent people and slowly, and we use the analogy of boiling the frog, slowly getting them to change that mindset that, okay, if God wants me to do this, it's not that bad since I got a roof over my head and food in my belly and a nice Mm -hmm. home to live in. I guess I can put up with that. And you think about it, there are a lot of people who put up with much worse in a traditional yeah. family uh, just to have security, mm-hmm. f- physical security, because it can't be emotional security. No. Yeah. But uh, but then uh, Shreve said, eh, not only are these women supposed to have sex with each other, but now we're going to start having children become my wives. Mm. And then he started to bring that in. So what he did is he took perversions that we were, I was actually in a, a that I was actually able to uncover earlier in his life that showed that he was a pedophile, and he then turned it into a religion and said, "No, God wants this to happen." So what he did is took something that he knew was absolutely vile and disgusting, and over time convinced people that no, this is the will of God, and I would never offend God 
So I don't want to do it, oh but I'm going to do it. Uh, well, okay. That's let's, so let's get into FLDS because, for, okay. So for those of you who guys aren't, who aren't familiar, and I did talk about this recently on my channel a little bit on for Tend to Life, not on the podcast, but it's the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the FLDS, not to be confused with regular LDS and practicing Mormons, but it's the religious group that split from the mainstream Mormon church in the, what was it, the early 20th century. They're known for their very strong beliefs, some don't believe in drinking caffeine. Some believe very strong beliefs, like limited use of technology. I believe too on their compounds or wherever they're living at the at the time. And then, of course, men being the ruler of the household, so to speak. Um, and the main, I guess, ruler that you could say would be the prophet, whether he's been appointed, which I don't know if they actually ever appoint somebody or if it is all self-proclaimed, which you could probably answer that. I feel like a lot of the time it's self-proclaimed from what I hear, but is there ever- It's, it's interesting. Actually, prior to Warren Jeffs, uh -huh. it was an acclamation of the presiding men in the group who would then say, this is God's will of who's in charge. Okay. Warren Jeffs came up with some revelation on his own that took him as one of the sons because he wasn't the oldest son, which was interesting mm -hmm. and propelled him into a position of power. So um, there were some interesting things that went on there, but, but yeah, it, it traditionally is a patriarchal kind of society. And yet we see in other groups um, where females are the leader and in the case of the Zion society, second in command and as much or more predatory, even sexually than the men were. And so I, I guess the thing I learned over time too, is that being whacked out is not a gender thing. <laughs> no, it's not. We've seen both genders go absolutely crazy at yeah. 100%. Well, to your point, so the FLDS that believe in poly polygamy and that they can have multiple wives. And a lot of the times they groom these underage girls to become their wives. A lot of the times too, it's family members and extended family members that come in, whether it's a cousin marrying off to another cousin, some interesting, weird family dynamics like that. And it's interesting because you said how Warren Jeffs had this, you know, revelation, which I hate, I hate saying that word, but where he said, you know, I'm the new prophet, which isn't that what happened because then once Warren was caught and his reign of terror came to an end, then Samuel Bateman stepped up to the plate. And isn't that... that tr tr there were people who tried to backfill the oh, there vacancy, were. but Warren Jeffs has remained in charge even from prison, which is, which is interesting. So we, we see in like the FLDS, we saw the Centennial Group split off from the FLDS. Did I send you a video from the Centennial Group? I Is it the where you were in Colorado City? Yeah, in the really nice neighborhoods. Did I send you in the, you know, multi-million dollar homes? There was a one really big home where you showed me it was the Prophet's home. Yeah, and I'm so going to put that video at the end of this, guys. So if you're listening to the audio version, you're definitely going to want to hop over onto YouTube because <laughs> I'm going to put that at the end of this because we got a whole tour of where these guys are living and the prophet's house and all this stuff. So yeah. yes, but continue. So, so um, a natural progression. In fact, um, many of the polygamous groups in Utah are breakoffs from Colorado city, Hilldale, which originally broke off from the Latter-day Saint faith when in the early 1900 uh, era, the church presiding leadership said no more polygamy. We're going to obey mm -hmm. the laws of the land and we're going to get rid of it. And, you know, polygamy wasn't um, 
that strange when it comes to religious circles. You see people because they try to go back and practice the biblical terms of polygamy and other kinds of things. But these groups said, no, no, the church, the Latter-day Saint faith is now completely off because they're saying get rid of polygamy Mm -hmm. and believe the laws of the land. And they moved down. But then as they had people fighting for leadership, then they started breaking off and creating their own groups, the All Red Group, the Kingston Group. And and so you see these, uh, the Ervil LeBarons and all these other whacked out I didn't realize there were so many. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And they all have their own little self-proclaimed proffer. They all are still looking to Warren Jeffs because I know. No, even- no, no, no. They all, they all. Okay. So you, you think about Christianity as a whole. Yeah. If we went back to, to um, Christ on the earth and then you have Peter, who's the rock and the Catholic church is created. And then you have the Episcopal spinoff and the Protestant spinoff. And, and now there are literally thousands of Christian churches mm-hmm. in the world all that spun off from this one source. And so it's kind of a natural thing. And and whether it's people that are trying to say, uh, I want to be in charge, or whether it's people that are saying, I think you're misunderstanding the scriptures and this is the interpretation and they follow that interpretation or whatever, you see these groups break off. Same thing happens in polygamy and any of these groups that start to get bigger, people will try to spin off and create their own. Something about power and control and it's usually men that think i'll just go create my own because i got a bunch of knuckleheads that'll follow me which it's so interesting because warren jeff's i don't know how many years it's been now that he's been locked away and kind of in there but people still who believe in him and look to him have his photo up in their homes and he still has phone calls where it almost as though he still has some sense of control and power over these people but then the guy I was talking about, and I believe his name was Samuel Bateman, wasn't where he like enters the chat and he's kind of like this new guy and he got caught recently too. It's just like, <laughs> what's with all of these guys thinking they're the prophet and that they're going to just have 11 year old wives. It's yeah, unbelievable. It is really tragic. And you know, it's interesting because you, you go there and I, I go to Colorado city and Hilldale periodically and drive around. Sometimes I see people that now start to smile and wave that really? used to hate me, you know. And so you're seeing a small evolution occur, but you still see the foothold that uh, that the FLDS culture has on many of those families out there. The mayor of Hildale was a former member of the FLDS church, and she broke away. And when she became mayor, I, I, she started turning things upside down. They actually have a few places where they've got curb and gutter in the city now, which, you know, that would have never happened years ago. And so uh, it's been kind of interesting to see. And and I think um, one of the interesting comments I got from Willie Jessup one day, and he was the the lead henchman for Warren Jeffs. Oh um, Willie and I spent a day together just a few months ago, and, and we were absolute um, combatants when I was in the attorney general's office. He was trying to keep Warren Jeffs out of prison. I was trying to put him in prison, and uh, and he was he and I didn't like each other. I don't know that we still probably don't. We probably still don't like each other, <laughs> but we we had some interesting discussion. And uh, during that, as we were talking, he said, "Well, you know, you might be surprised because he said uh, if you went over to the high school, you now see a few girls wearing shorts playing volleyball rather than the pioneer dresses." Uh-huh. 
So, you know, slowly things are starting to change and, and, uh, hopefully that, that community will heal and become a little more diverse. In all of your time going kind of like deep into the cults and talking with people, did you ever worry for a second? Like, what if they're brainwashing me? What if I'm going to be a part of this cult? What if I'm going to become know, a believer? <laughs> I never worried about them brainwashing me, but I did worry about my own safety on many occasions oh, yeah, going into the communities. And especially when I, w- I would set up meetings and go in and talk to the leadership and, you know, me and a, maybe a sergeant from the state police would be the, in this room all alone with them. And uh, there were times when I thought, you know, this isn't, probably the smartest thing. And yet we knew that they knew that our people knew that we were there Mm -hmm. if all that makes sense. So, Oh my gosh. um, But yeah, it was, uh, it was a a strange thing. And and, you know, you'll never, I can't ever explain adequately what the feeling was like, Annie, but when you would drive into Colorado city or Hilldale, um, the uh, men would start following you in their trucks and they would turn off and somebody else would come in behind and pick you up and they would follow every movement. I'd, I'd always stop at the store and go in and buy something. And Gentiles, the guys like me are not allowed in the store, you know, but yeah. I'd go in with, with my badge on my belt and a gun on and I'd go and buy a Coke and I'd stop and talk to the lady at the counter. How you doing? And they just didn't stare at you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I that almost has fascinated me too because I feel like – if you come in as an outsider, of course, they're going to try to intimidate you. They don't want you around. Is it because they're so protective over their lifestyle and the way they live? Or is it because they're in fear that they will get in trouble and some there will be arrests made? Why is it that there is like such that just bad vibes if you were to drive through or enter in? And why do they want to keep the outsiders away so much? So the primary reason is they're taught that everyone on the outside is evil and part of Babylon. And that only those on the inside are the chosen and those that have the true connection with God and that any other influence is going to be a negative influence that will hurt him in some way or another. So that would be like um, you and I living in Transylvania and opening the door to a um, werewolf and inviting him in to get a Coke and visit. Uh. That it is a physical and emotional reaction. Uh, then it's wow. much different now, but then that that it would absolutely make their skin crawl to have someone try to talk to them that wasn't part of the cult. That is so fascinating. Yeah, I've always been fascinated with cult, just because to me too. I wonder, like, how is it that these cult leaders? And I know you said it, it's like a slow burn and it happens over time, but. It always has fascinated me. How do they brainwash these people, get them to believe a certain thing, get them to believe they're doing God's work, that this is all at the direction of God? Are there certain traits that you would say you've seen in these people of like the power that they have and the control they have over people? Or like, how does that mind play and mind game work? How do they do it? Yeah, you know, I've often wondered, in fact, my wife and I had this discussion the other night as we were watching actually a um another case that's in the news and it's there there's almost a um, a unique psychopathy about these people that are somehow propelled into these positions of leadership um whether it's a Warren Jeffs or a Manson or uh 
or or what became a Richard Ramirez, um, they they have this ability to project this power and authority, and people, especially people that just want somebody to tell them what to do, flock to those kinds of people. You know, um, you and I and the people that are listening for the most part, they try to develop their own relationship with the God that they believe in. They try to work through, how do I somehow get inspiration from God in my own life and be a good example in others? Then there are these groups of people, and these are the people that I generally found in these cults that just want somebody to tell them everything to do mm-hmm. and guarantee they'll go to heaven. You just do do what I tell you wow. and you're going to make it. And, you know, religion does that in kind of a soft way. The difference is a cult doesn't leave free agency mm-hmm. into play. Mm-hmm. Religion tells you and me, you pray, read scriptures, be kind to people. That's how you get closer to God and you live a better life. The cult doesn't do that. Mm -mm. The cult is much more restrictive and directive and and controlling. Another big cult is, of course, the children of God, also known as the family. Is that one that you had any working with or that you're familiar with? Never never did any work with them as far as it's a little older than than my investigative time. Now, since there have been like the family in Australia, I did some work on. And uh, there there are children of God here in the States, um, those kinds crop up. And the thing that I've always found kind of interesting is as different as they'd like to be, (laughs) they're very much the same. Mm -hmm. They're very much the same in the uh, control mechanisms, this single authority figure, the inability to question authority, the Mm -hmm. secrecy, the control of members that you don't go out without others to make sure you don't, you know, get hoodwinked and pulled off into the normalcy. Um, Those kinds of control mechanisms are are all these kind of like commonalities in cult characteristics. Okay. So let me ask you this. With that being said, do you think Scientology is a cult? Ooh, that's an interesting question. (laughs) And I'll ask you. And in fact, what I'd say to you Sorry is... Sorry if you're a Scientologist it's, watching it's, or it's listening. It's interesting because Scientology is often thrown into the question mark box. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that it continues to somehow have a religious connotation when it's not based on religion at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and every cult expert that I know, and I know the biggies have been punished by Scientology when they've looked at it. Really? And uh, they've had, um, they have indicated that there have been concerns there. So my recommendation would be, frankly, that uh, until you really know more about it, that that's a place where all we can do is say, the media reported this, or this individual reported that. Uh, I can talk about the the uh, Zion Society or the FLDS or the the these groups because I personally created totally. um, experiences with them. I look at some of those and I think, man, all I can do is look at the allegations that are in the media, mm-hmm. and all of them cause me to think, wow, those are those are really. Uh, motivating kinds of comments. It's interesting because I agree with you that unless you're in it, you obviously are only hearing or seeing one side of it. So how are you going to make that determination? But 
and eight, this is of course only from what I've seen in the media and heard about Scientology, but any group that is so restrictive on its members, that is so private, that makes you pay a lot of money, that makes you go through this step program, gives me pause. It makes me wonder like, yeah. okay, who's really in charge here? Why do you need so much control? Why am I, I don't, I don't want to, say the wrong word, but like banished for a lack of a better term. If I do the wrong thing and I'm a traitor, like there's no free will, it feels like. So anytime yeah. you're in a situation like that, to me, it puts off the red flags. I'm like, that's a cult. That's a cult. That's a cult. And Scientology to me is no different. Again, I could be ignorant to a lot of the teachings and a lot of the, you know, reasoning as to why they do certain things. And if you're a Scientologist, please feel free to school me in the comments. But there's something about it that has always scared me a little bit. And to your point with these, you said that a lot of the experts in the field have had, where did you say retaliation or there's been something where Scientology has tried to shut them down? Yeah. Well, they've, they've, um, they've had concerns based on the fact that they spoke out and then things happened, which is kind of interesting. And I, I guess the thing that I always go back to is to me, the marker of a cult versus a traditional religion or others is the levels of secrecy mm-hmm. and uh, transparency is so incredibly important, whether it's in religion or in our personal lives or our businesses. And sure, certainly there are trade secrets and things that we do to, you know, um, but, um, but yeah, that, that idea that we don't share that, that the outside world wouldn't understand our little secret or special thing you know those those always create question yeah okay well we're i mean we're gonna definitely have to do another like circle back on cults because i feel like we barely scratched the surface of what i want to talk about but i know we're pressed for time (laughs) but before we go do that i have some rapid fire crime questions for you rapid fire yes and this is going to be a new little tradition over here on seriously with the guests and even just q a from comments but I want to get candid over here. I want to like kind of just put you on the spot and get you to answer some things. Mm. So it's just for fun. There's a couple silly ones. Don't take it too seriously. I've had really good defense attorneys try this before. (laughs) Let's see what happens. I'm going to try to soften you up at first and I'm going to throw the curveballs at you. So let's start with this. What recent case has bothered you the most? Whether it is the actions and what took place in the case or maybe a ruling, a verdict, what's bothered you the most in a recent case? You you know, I've been working a lot on uh, the Zachary Latham case, Mm -hmm. which is the TikToker who ended up stabbing his neighbor. And um, the thing that I found interesting is how the media, because it benefited them, remarked that Latham was setting all of this up to benefit his TikTok subscriber pool. And there's no question when you look at it that he was making uh, videos of him racing his car and other things and putting it on TikTok that he was challenging challenging people, calling them Karens and other things because those were popular trending kinds of things. But um, it kind of troubled me that now he's in a case where he's being charged with murder and... Every video I've seen, everything shows him backing up. He may have, he may have caused every bit of anger that's been bugging people, um, but when this murder occurred, this father and his sons 
showed up and they were planning on tuning this kid up. It mm -hmm. just seems that way. And and so it, it's like the weirdest case to me because it's not what I normally get down a rabbit hole on, but it's really intrigued me a lot. So have you been covering this one a lot on your channel? Um, I haven't talked about it. I'm going to talk about oh. it in the next day or two. I've Ooh. been, I've been doing some uh, court TV stuff on it. And uh, today on this morning on court TV, I got a little exercised about some things and, <laughs> and uh, that normally doesn't happen, but, but um, I, I, uh, I, I don't have a problem at all when I, think somebody shouldn't be in a courtroom. I don't have a problem at all when I think someone should by saying, in my opinion, this yeah. is what happened. So that one's kind of bugged me a little bit. Okay. I'm going to have to watch your coverage on it because I want to uh, know more about it. Um, okay. If you were a juror on the Casey Anthony trial, what would your verdict have been? Oh, that's interesting. If I, if I had been on that jury, I would have without question convicted her. Yeah. I knew we got along. Um, who do you think killed John Bonet? Ah, very interesting. <laughs> you know, um, so I am going to incredibly competently avoid answering this by saying. <laughs> you can't play the fifth. You can't do it. <laughs> that I was sitting in uh, Secret Service headquarters the day that the documents arrived for analysis. And promised at a certain point that I would never talk about anything I know about that case. So was it Burke? Did you hear what I said? <laughs> you could tell me. <laughs> well, I would never shut the cameras off. Was it Burke? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. If you had to move a body, who would you call to come help you? Ooh. Well, number one, I would call the local mortuary because <laughs> I would never do something that was criminal in nature. Or at least I hope I never if do something <laughs> criminal in nature. I'd help you, Mike. And, you know, um, I'm afraid to even ask this question, so I won't make it a question other than a statement, is who would fantasize about what would my next step be in that regard? <laughs> Over here, I guess we do. <laughs> um, okay, I've got a, a couple more for you. Do you think that Brian Laundrie's parents knew that he killed Gabby Petito? Yes. I do too. Okay. Yeah. All right. Personal feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just based on a lot of different things, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think he called them and confessed. Yeah. yeah. And then they called, what is it? Bertolini, Bernato, whatever his name is. The, um, okay. Are there any true crime conspiracies that you believe in? For example, Chris Watts having his mistress, Nicole, help him. Um, so are there any true crime mysteries? Conspiracies. Conspiracies. There are a lot of conspiracies that I think are incredibly interesting. Mm -hmm. In most cases, I would say, no, I don't. Okay. I believe that it really boils down to um, quick, rash, uh, disorganized decision. Okay. All right. Last question. And this is a big one. And everybody pay attention here. If you were to go missing... Who should we all look for <laughs> or look at? Yeah. <laughs> Who should you look at? Who should we look at? <laughs> yeah, probably famous Dave's. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay, good. That was fun. Thank you for being such a good sport. So we're going to do that now with all of the guest hosts. But also, if you guys have a question for me or any of the other future guests, just leave it in the comment section below on YouTube. And maybe you will hear in the next episode your name shouted out and your question asked and answered. So leave that below. Oh, what a fun idea. It'll be good. It will. Yeah. Hopefully there's nothing that puts anybody on the spot too much or puts me on the spot too much. Um, okay, so can you just before we wrap up, give everybody a rundown of all things profiling <laughs> evil, what you're going to be covering in the near future, how to follow, how to watch. You have a lot of exciting things going on. So tell oh, the people. Wow. Well, thank you. And every time I have the chance to be with you, I always get a bunch of people who subscribe. So thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad they love you. Oh, well, it, it, you know, this has been the strangest thing because um, you, you're like really likable on there. I'm like this old guy that just gets on and I, I'm always kind of the same personality and the same kind of drab. Let's not get too much in the woods here. And too <laughs> I much. I think it's a good balance. You reel me in a lot of the time when we do our live streams together. You're like, all right, Annie, you're, you're trailing off a little bit. Come back in. It's a good balance. Well, um, so we're, we're, we're pretty excited. We, we just, we're, 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 like days from signing a contract to have our podcast on the Zion Society cult case, which is built uh, on, and you said to mention my book, Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult that um, has been purchased. And we're going to, we're going to roll out a, awesome. a, a big, big podcast. Congratulations! So we're really, we're really excited about it. It's already cut. We've already done all the recording. It's done. That's the one you sent me the preview of, right? Yes. Oh, I'm yeah. so excited. So we're we're really hopeful because we're pointing the proceeds toward building a new children's advocacy center. So wow. um, all of uh, the proceeds thus far on the book have all gone toward this justice center. It's going to break ground in probably August of this year. We thought it would happen by now, but it's getting everything done is a little slow. Um, but it'll be a place where children can be physically and forensically examined if they are victims of child physical or sexual assault wow. and prepared for the court case. We, we did that because the Zion Society book, actually the children in that book were the first children in the second Children's Justice Center in the United States back 33 years ago. And, uh, and so now that building is ready to be built and and we hope to have the kids come out. So we're really excited about that and looking forward to it. Um, I continue to do court TV uh, just about weekly and uh, News Nation on a fairly regular basis. Um, and and uh, we'll just continue to try to knock out something that makes sense. And and uh, because Profiling Evil, we kind of hope is more a little, little more educational. Mm -hmm. It is. Then we we sometimes really bore people, but hopefully no. they're going in the right direction. It's good. They, it's not entertainment. Like the pe people consume too much entertainment. They need to go to you, see the entertainment, and get like the core values and like get checked. I know for me, whenever I watch one of your videos, I'm like, when it's like the back to the classroom, I'm like, oh shit, I got carried away again. I got oh no, away you, again. You, 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 <laughs> I need to relax. You, you and and I'll tell you, I just absolutely <laughs> love watching your stuff because. You say the things that many of us want to say. Thank you. And uh, I really appreciate that. Plus, you know, I can't respond as a woman because I've never been one, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I look at that and I think this is so incredibly valuable because 
I remember one day uh, somebody was asking me, my wife asked me, she said, uh, when you walk out of the mall at night, do you look over your shoulder and scan the parking lot? And, you know, I'm, I'm like, I wonder if there's a Burger King close by that I can grab a burger on the way home or something, you know? And she says, you know, a woman is looking at the cars in the parking mm -hmm. lot and the people and the lighting and determining what whether it's safe to go out or not. And so I think it's absolutely incredible that you continue to do the work you do because you, you add an angle that cannot be added by people like me. Wow. Thank you so much. That's so nice. <laughs> well, I'm always scanning parking lots. I'm scanning and I have my AirPods in, but I never am listening to anything. I'm listening to my surroundings. <laughs> uh, yeah. And if I'm in Target with my kids game over, I'm looking at every single person dead in the eye, making sure nobody's watching me. Like, yeah. But unfortunately that's what happens when you're a woman. You have to be on high alert. Yeah, it is. It's really something. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was in Philadelphia two weeks ago and I stopped at my favorite sandwich shop. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's Pat's King of Steak down on Pashunk. And uh, if you're familiar with, anyway, it's, it's, it used to be kind of a rough area. It's getting a little nicer now. But I was sitting there and I sat down next to this guy that that uh, looked like he'd probably been to prison about the most of his life. Oh my gosh. We had the coolest conversation and um, we approach things completely different in life. But I learned so much listening to him. And, you know, he probably thought, who was who that goober that was talking to me? But I just think we got to quit being so stinking judgmental mm -hmm. and relax a little bit and realize that people can change. People can make mistakes. But when you talk predatory behavior... I have a hard time believing those can change. Yeah. That's where I, that's where I get a little judgmental too. And I come down hard on people, but I need to ease up because a lot of the time they're not guilty. <laughs> well, well, so I mean, learning. yeah, I mean, that's a great question is, uh, did you think, uh, Buster Murdoch was responsible for Stephen Smith? Uh, honestly, I don't know. Part my, here's my thing. And this probably is not the popular opinion, my gut tells me no. What do you think? I don't think he was. You I, don't? Yeah. I've never thought he was. I, I had questioned it a little bit because, but more so just because of the coincidences. It was Stephen, then it was the housekeeper, like all these things. I'm like, how do these people keep dying? But like, then the more I looked into it and heard about the actual accident and what had happened, I was like, yeah, there is some weird stuff that doesn't make sense, but I, I don't know. I yeah. think everybody's kind of looking for a scapegoat, especially with that family particularly, which I understand why. It's like- a crazy family, but there's, I don't know that he's involved. I think people are trying to make him involved, if that makes sense, yeah. like, you know? Yeah. But. Those, those are hard. I know. Well, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate thank it. You. I can't wait to do this again. <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Serialistly. Don't forget to leave your questions in the comment section below. And if you want to watch the video version of this, always hop over to YouTube. Otherwise, you can listen on all podcast platforms. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to rate and review. And we will talk again on the next episode next Monday on Serialistly. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>